Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And don't you love this? This is my cell phone up to the microphone because our main computer that played the Media Monkey is down. But I wanted to give you some music today. So there you go. And as I'm playing on my phone, I'm getting a text, which is too funny. But don't worry about it. So we have a great show today. But I got to tell you how my day started off, people. It, uh, it sucked. I'll tell you, I woke up and uh, Joanne had to go to the airport today. So she's getting ready for a flight. And she has some stuff to do. She has some work to do. And all of a sudden, I sit there, and we put the TV on upstairs, and there's no cable working. It says no signal. She goes, and she goes to the internet. No cable. So she's freaking out because, you know, she overreacts. And she's going, oh, my God, I got to get this done, this done, this done. So I sit there. Now, this is 6 in the morning. I wanted to fall back asleep because, you know, I had a long day driving her to the airport, three shows, a bunch of stuff. Now the cable guy's coming in later. But it's so funny. I call AT&T, and I say, listen. Here's the problem. And they're trying to give me all this troubleshooting. I'm like, okay, here is the problem. Don't, can't you check this? The signals, the sign says no signal. And the guy's trying to sit there and go, well, what does the TV say? And I'm like, no signal. So this goes on and on. And no lie, I was on the phone for 50 minutes. I finally started bitching. And I'm, I'm not, you know, I was in customer service. I was a waiter. I don't do that usually. But I'm telling you, this guy, I finally got the, uh, they said, oh, you, you could have someone come in tomorrow at like four. I go, no, I don't know if I'm going to be around tomorrow. I may book something. I may have stuff to do, you know. My girlfriend's out of town. I got stuff to do. So finally, I was on the phone for a damn hour. And finally, the supervisor got in. So I have someone coming in today from 4.30 to 8.30. And the worst part is, when I was leaving, the cable went back on. So we'll see. Anyway, we have a great show. We have a we have a talented gentleman. A very uh, a great bio. I read about your bio. We have a Juan Alderetti. Thank you. Yes. I got to ask you. You were on Dean Del Rey's podcast. <clears throat> and you talked about from Juan to John. Now, did you? when did you change your name to go by John and then go back to going by Juan because you were born Juan, right? <laughs> well, no, I actually was born John. My parents, <clears throat> my parents are Mexican-American, born in East Los Angeles, and um, they were part of the era before it was comfortable in the United States to, you know, teach your kids Spanish. My mom grew up speaking Spanish, so did my dad, and they used to get their asses whooped. My mom used to get whooped by the nuns. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> my bad. But anyway, and so, um, hey, man, I'm Latino, so I do a lot of hand <laughs> movements and stuff. So watch out. No, the table um, jumps. I had to tell you. I, yeah. I, I used to tell people. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, like, Latinos are like that, like Italians are that. My yeah. girlfriend's Italian. You like, and I love that because, and I talk with my hands. And I think if you're, especially if you're creative, which you are, right. it, it expresses yourself. Yes. Well, I, you know, I just watched this Michael Rapaport. My favorite all-time internet anything on the internet. Uh, is uh, Snoop Dogg's GGN. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's his own like talk show. And Rappaport was on there and he gets in, he starts touch, like getting in the Snoop space and he goes, yo man, I'm sorry, man. It's a New York thing. You know, this is what we do, the New York dudes. And I go, I think tons of cultures have that where like, you know, I'll be up on someone and then, you know, like, yo, and, like my wife's Japanese. So, you know, rolling up on Japanese, people <laughs> with that kind of like, you know, emotion and stuff, it kind of bugs them out sometimes. But anyway, Anyway, my, my story was, so my um, parents are born in East Los Angeles, and they used to get their asses whooped for having accents. So my parents were like, we're not going to teach our kids um, Spanish because we don't want that same, you know, trauma to happen to them. And so, but they would speak, our grandparents would speak it to us. So my grandparents always call me Juanito, and my parents would sometimes call me Juanito, and then, uh, you know. I'm a kid, whatever. But then I, then like somewhere in the nineties, all my friends started to just call me Juan again. And I think it's just, you know, the group of friends I had or whatever. And then, um, and then it's just kind of just, I, I prefer it. You know what I mean? So, um, like if you look on the, from the first rage against the machine record to like the fourth one, I'm thanked as Juan on there. And I was in a band called Pet, and same thing with them. Everything I did with them was Juan. And even though I was in Racer X, still putting out records, and they put me on as John, because that's what I was when I was in Racer right. X. So, yeah. So, when when did you know you wanted to do this as a living? When did you know you wanted to be a musician? I know you started at a pretty young age. Wasn't your dad a jazz fan? or was Super jazz fan. And, <clears throat> yeah, I just, you know, it's one of those weird things where I wasn't, I mean, I, I remember when I was a little kid, always having dreams of, of me playing music on stage. I would, like a little kid and I would go with the radio underneath my pillow and I would just imagine it me on stage playing it. I don't know why. And then I never really took lessons or anything. And then just one day I had a bunch of friends in uh, junior high, right? We were going to start a band, but nobody wanted to play bass. So I was like, all right, I'll play bass. And so 
I started playing bass and then I just was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I got to try to be the best, you know, there is. And my older brother was like a big influence on me musically. And he was just like, well, Stanley Clark is the best bassist in the world. So you better listen to him. So here I am like a little kid trying to figure out what that dude's doing. And it was like crazy. All I could under really comprehend was that he was fast. So I started playing fast. So now you would move up to Northern California at this time, right? Correct. Yeah. Cause I was born in Los Angeles and then, um, you know, when I was nine, we moved to the Bay Area. And so then I was in the Bay Area till I was 19. And then I moved back to L.A. Now, were you playing in bands before you moved to L.A.? Or were you just... Yeah, I was playing in um, uh, just local bands and stuff. You know, nothing... You know, we, you know, we made demos, but not, no, nothing was happening. And, you know, there was this guy, Mike Barney, who I was telling you about earlier with that Dean Devoray used to work for. And he had a record label. And so he would he was like the only action in the area. And so, you know, Mike knew who I was, but I mean, I think the the best thing that happened to me was one time, uh, Phil Mogg, which was the singer of UFO, a British band. Right. Metal band. Okay. So just so you know, <clears throat> anyway, he was looking, he was starting a new band after UFO and he was came to my city of Nevada with Mike Varney and, and watched my band rehearse to check out my guitar player. And Mogg actually liked me, but Mike Varney said, Oh no, you don't want to take him because he's too young. And I was really green. I probably wouldn't have been able to handle the road because I was just a kid. But I remember going, wow, it was like a big thing to me. And then um, and then I just knew I had to get down to L.A. because there was nothing in the Bay Area for me. Because I was in Novato, which is Marin, which is just nothing. Where all the stuff was, that was happening was in the East Bay, like with Metallica and Exodus. And, and so that wasn't none of that was going on where I lived. So I moved to L.A. and got out of the Bay Area. Now you moved down here. You went to the Music Institute. Is that, mm-hmm. so now, now was that a was that a conscious decision, or did you say, "I'm moving down there. I might as well learn my craft." I mean, did you just say, "I'm coming to L.A.," and then you heard about the Music Institute, or did you sit there and go, "I'm moving down there to go to it"? Well, I was going to music school in the Bay Area, San Francisco State University, and it was just all sight reading. And I didn't know how to sight read, and um, at the time, I was friends with Randy Jackson, who was. Um, you know, Randy Jackson from American Idol. Who was in Journey. <clears throat> yeah, who was also in Journey. He actually he actually is the first guy to ever recommend me for a professional gig. He was playing in a band called Taxi that was signed. In San Fran. In the Bay. Okay. And he recommended me to do that gig. And I remember just being in awe of him. But I, I didn't get the gig. And I remember thinking it was because I wasn't good enough. And I, literally at that point, I said, I'm moving to L.A. And I moved to L.A. And then... He moved there a couple years later. And was he a good musician? Randy? Yeah. Oh. I mean, because everyone sees him as the American Idol. And that's what's a weird thing how you turn. Oh, like, you see him as the yo cat, you know, dog. He's, he's one of the baddest bass players. Okay. But yeah. He's, he, you know, he, he, he had a path that he knew. Like, you know, I, he's a smart dude. So, but playing wise, yeah, he can play. I mean, he was, he did, he was in. Mark and uh, Michael Nardo Walden's band, which Michael played Superfusion, you know, and so he did a ton of records. He did all the anything Nardo Michael Walden, who was in the Bay Area, and I think he still is in Marin. He anything that he did, Randy, I think, played bass on. So, like, all those big 80s Aretha records or uh, Randy. So, that's a huge recommendation when someone when he recommends you, that's a huge. I mean, that's like, yeah, the king. He was, a, he was enamored by my sh- my sh- the ability to shred. He heard that and he goes, well, Yeah, I think he knew that eventually I would get to a point where I was something. And, um, but yeah, and then I was in LA and I saw him and, you know, he was already doing stuff or whatever, but he would always be like, oh, all the ready, yo, man. And he was saying dog back then, like, yo, you're my dog, man, you know, but yeah. And then I moved to LA just cause I, 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 when I didn't get that gig, I was like, I'm not good enough and I got to get better. And then I went to LA with <clears throat> all intentions of, of learning how to read and and getting to be in a studio guy or whatever, playing Zappa's band is my dream, all that kind of stuff. And then within a couple months, I meet Paul Gilbert and he asked me to join Racer X. And I was, next thing I know, I was like, oh, I'm gonna do metal now or shred metal? I didn't even know what it was. What did you want, when you were coming down here and trying to learn to be, you know, you said you had to get better, what, what were your sights set on to play? I mean, if someone had said to you at that age, hey, okay, here's the deal. You're down here. We're gonna put you in a band. What would have been your sights to play? I mean, you said you know the shred mill. You didn't you know expect to do that. Yeah. But what was your what did you want to do? Like if someone said, hey, hey Juan, you can join a band, and this is the kind of music you're gonna play. You're gonna put a band together. What would you have said back then? Yeah, that's a weird question because you know like I've always been a 
dude who's into everything. And so part of me wanted to be like a Zappa dude because everybody knew the Zappa musicians were the best in the business in LA. So I was like, I want to do that. But then also I was like obsessed with Eddie Van Halen. So I was like, I'll be the Eddie Van Halen on bass just because he was the guy. And then I was just like, but the music I listened to was like U2. And so I was like, oh, well, I want to be in a band that's like U2 or Killing Joke. And actually, before I met Paul, I, was, I had started a band that sounded like a super new wavy, almost dark and <clears throat> kind of punk. And that's my music. That's what I, that's the music I can compose. I can play bass in a lot of styles, but the music I compose is more new wavy and just that kind of. So um, I just was kind of figuring like, I'll figure it out when I get there. And then Paul Gilbert goes, you want to make a record? And I was like, yeah, that's what I came here to do. Next thing I know, three years, shred. Now you met him in school, right? Uh-huh, yes. And okay. he, I met him through that same guitar player that Phil Mogg was checking out was my roommate when I moved to LA because he moved with me and he was a shredder. He could rip and he was friends with Paul because their shredders find each other. And then Paul was like, I'm looking for a drummer who was my roommate. And so he recommends my roommate. And then, and then my roommate tells him, well, I'm in a band with Juan, the bass player, John back then. And he goes, well, I'm looking for a bass player too. So bring him. So we go and audition and he doesn't like my friend on drums, but he likes me. And so he asked me if I wanted to make a record. And I was like, sure. And then Mike Barney back in the Bay area comes into the fold. And here I am, like, even though I'm in LA, Mike's the record label dude. We're recording our records up in the Bay area. Um, and Paul and I start started Racer X. It was just us two, and then we found uh, and then Harry, the Austrian drummer, and then we find we find Jeff, who was in Arizona in Racer X. We start Racer X, and we just start going from there. So how do you start when you put that album out? I still call them albums. It shows my age, and I right. will always call them. Albums. It was our first album. Yeah. We only recorded a vinyl and cassette. See, that's the best. Yes. I love vinyls and cassettes. I, yeah. I still have cassettes. I don't have a player, but I have tons of cassettes. One day I'll get a player. I'll see. <laughs> I'll, I'll go to a garage sale. I'll see a boombox for like two bucks. We're like, oh, I'll take Do it. it and just play it. But so now, back then, though, the the thrash it wasn't a big scene. How did you find? Like, how did you find? How did people find your band? I mean, because it must be you were going into it, it, sort of like you know, it wasn't a huge market, right? Eh, you know, I mean, you're right. I mean, I can give you a, I mean, the only reason I know this stuff is because once I got into it, I, you know, I just kind of submerged myself into shred metal because I didn't know what it was. <clears throat> so Paul was like listening to this dude, Yngwie Malmsteen at the time. And so I didn't know who he was. And so Paul was playing me stuff and I was like, Ugh, you know, like, like, this is what you're into. And he played me this other guy named Gary Moore who was in Thin Lizzy for a while. Right. And I dug that. I was like, well, I like this, and I like Van Halen, but I don't like Yngwie, but I'll find my place in this. And so we would go see, you know, he would go see Yngwie. I didn't. But I would go see local bands in L.A., and then we get, there was always a shred element, and it all really comes from Van Halen. Van Halen is, even though he, I mean, he is a shredder, but his band's like a pop rock band almost with hard guitar, but it's like a hard rock. It's not shred, and it's not really even metal to me. But, he started it all. Rat, every band that came up, you know, everybody was from Van Halen. And so, and he's all about innovating on the instrument. And so all of us at MI were just about innovation. Like everybody wanted to do something somebody else wasn't doing. And I believe at the time I, I, I was in the school and it was like, nobody could burn as fast as I could. It was just a gift. Not that I was something instinctive that I wanted to do. I was just like, Fast means money. <laughs> oh, I'm going to play fast. How do you learn? I mean, it's funny because you sit there and you, you think you think of bass as sort of slower. And how did you how did you learn? I mean, it's something you had to practice. I bet you had to practice a lot. Or did you? Or did it's it just, pretty easy. So it's to play back fast. Then it was, back then it was just like, <clears throat> I, li I literally, excuse me, <clears throat> I, I literally never warmed up. I would just pick up the instrument and I could burn fast. That's because physical part of my body is hypermobile is what they call it hypermobility which means there's nothing holding you tight okay. together so all the guys who have a lot of muscle or compact dudes have to warm up to it to loosen their muscles not me i could pick up the bass and burn you know paul was the same way just pick up the instrument and burn he has that same thing but it was just got into this competitiveness like you're just trying to make money and make a living being a musician and so you're like this works let's go with it it's not after a point after a while it's like it's not it's more paul's vision and what he wants to do musically and i'm just riding with him because i i just saw that like the only way my parents will let me 
keep doing this, you know, down here in LA as if I'm making money or I'm making progress. Right. So I, I did graduate from the school, but I barely went to school because I was just, yeah, you're right. Rehearsing Racer X, learning a whole style of music that was just emerging. You know? Now, what, where where were you guys when you started out? Where were you guys playing? Like in LA? Our first show was at the Waters Club San Pedro, which is this, this old mildew club that had like a fountain in it. Like it was like this weird mermaid scene, <laughs> the Waters Club, and it stunk in there like mildew. And you just you, we that was our first gig. It was Paul, me. And it wasn't even the original drummer. It was some other guy named Todd DeVito who actually makes drum parts now and does a really good job of it. But he was a pretty thunderous drummer. But he played drums and then Jeff, the singer. And there was probably a couple hundred people there. And we, I can't remember if we had to sell tickets to that one or not. We probably did. And then we were like, wow, that's a good turnout because it's San Pedro and everybody's in Hollywood and nobody has a car at MI. And they all figured out how to get down there. And so then the second show, I think it was Troubadour, and it was like almost sold out. And then after that, every show was sold out because everybody knew if you wanted to see the most burning dudes in Shred, you had to go see Racer X. And, but we never toured. We only played L.A. So you only played L.A. You know, right. Is there a reason why you didn't tour? Was it just because you didn't know if it would... My Barney had no touring budget. Um we didn't have an agent. We were always so consumed with trying to get it to a major label, and that never happened. And I mean, I had—I mean, I—I I did it on Dean's uh, show, but I had—you'd be surprised on how many wild-ass stories you get when you're like the hot band, and I'm the guy running the business. Paul's too busy shredding and practicing, and and Jeff lives in Arizona, and we're still working out the other members of the band. So I'm doing all the business, and it's just nuts who you get. To, I mean, I had Gene Simmons call me at home. You know what I mean? Now, what, what, now what, is he, what was Gene Simmons calling you for? I mean, I mean, it's just... It's, I didn't like our singer, so he called me up, and he goes, uh, I need to speak to John Alderetti. I go, this is me, and he goes, this is Gene Simmons. And I go, hold up. And I think I think Paul was on the other line, and I, I go, can you hold on one second, Gene? So I flipped over, and I go, Paul, God of Thunder's on the other line. I'll call you right back flip back and then i go hi gene he goes uh just want to let you know i uh, love the band hate the singer get rid of the singer i'll sign the band hung up bingo that's it <clears throat> and so, you know like you're just like fuck i spoke to god of thunder it's just so ill you know and, and you know and i'm not even that big a kiss fan i was one of the kids who used to write kiss sucks all over his binders and shit i i was not into them at all you know so I, but i was still like in shock like you're just like what oh shit you know it's happening something's happening you know, nothing happened and eventually in our band, but like, you know, people were interested, but they just didn't like our singer. And then, so, I mean, was it just loyalty while you kept your singer or I mean, what was... Because we were loyalty. We were a band. We're brothers. So, so and that's Paul, good. You know, we had a chance to get Mark Slaughter back then and we probably would have got a record deal, but, but Paul just didn't like his voice and he liked jazz and he just goes, nobody sings with as much passion as Jeff. And I agree, like, maybe you don't like our singer, but man, when he sang, he gave everything to it see that's what cracks me up about the music industry he sings he kicks his ass he sings the songs right what didn't they like about him his look so see that's that's what pisses me off it's like you know it, it's so it sucks because you know what if, if if eddie van halen weighed 400 pounds and had like a, a mohawk van halen wouldn't have been who they are because people would have said oh he doesn't have the right look right. even though you can be a beast on a guitar if you right. want or anything it's just it's like sean lane yeah, I don't know if you know who Sean Lane is, but he was like, yeah, he weighed, uh, he was, really, but he was, he was what every shredder looked at and went, nobody's gonna touch him. I don't, nobody has touched him. He was insane, but he was just this four hundred pound dude eating mayonnaise out of a jar right. and right. ripping <laughs> insane guitar, insane. So, <clears throat> so Kings, uh, Kings, your band Racerack stays together for three albums. We did two studios and two live albums so so what's it like doing a live album is it just i mean because oh and then we got back together and did two more three more three more in the beginning though what, yeah. what's it like doing a live album i mean um, was it just I mean, we why did were you trying to get out of our record deal okay so we went up to country club with mobile truck and recorded uh extreme volume one and then we had a bunch of leftovers that we didn't use and then we were all broke and we were like paul was already in mr big we we're like please can we release volume two <laughs> to make some money he's like all right so we put that together and released volume two but yeah and paul was you know he left us for mr big and then all of us tried to keep it together like and then scott got into judas priest bruce and i started this uh 
kind of blues rock band called The Scream. And Jeff ended up becoming a drummer for Badlands, which was with Jakey Lee. Now, how when you when you sit there and you go out and you have to start your own band, how do you find guys? Because this isn't now on the internet. Uh, this isn't this isn't like now you can just sit there and go flying. Yeah. Like Bruce Bruce would get airline tickets and go fly to the Midwest and look for singers. I mean, you would just go scout people. I mean, that's people. basically we'd hear about people through mail or word of mouth, and then Bruce would go fly out and see them. Yeah. I mean, it's just so crazy how it's changed. I mean, I always right. laugh because I used to do comedy, and it was oh, like it was yeah. back in the day. Right, <clears throat> you'd send you'd send a package to someone, and you'd find out you find the club booker, and if you didn't have a reference, you know that that guy got the package and threw it in the trash with every other fifteen hundred. And right. I mean, you'd have to sit there and put a tape together and a picture and a letter and pay postage. It's like five bucks. And when you're when you're making a hundred bucks, you know, a show and you're doing five shows a week, you know, those little five buck things. Then you're sitting there going, wait, I'm I'm spending this money to make. 100 bucks another show you know what i mean so it was crazy so now so now the band you you do you start the band after that so now what do you do i mean because the, the band you said you didn't work out scream didn't work out so you're sitting there as your musician well yeah because then that band we got we find ended up with john karabi and then motley crew steals them okay so now now it's, it's like almost like poaching i mean it's like does it piss you off because you're like wait a second we found this guy and then a band will they just come and offer them i mean well the the the, the, the cool thing was like at the time they were like we're huge fans of your record and you know i wrote a ton on that record and so did bruce the guitar player and and john the singer but i did write it had a lot to do with that record so here's this gigantic band because they were coming off of their biggest record girls 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 i think it was or whatever i don't know and then um and they like your stuff and so I'm like well i'm doing something right because they like my songwriting and whatever and so they steal them they promise tour dates which we never ever get it was all bullshit we, we didn't get any money they just stole them and, and they got him out of the contract with Hollywood Records. And and so we were like, this is our chance to get the hell out of like heavy metal. Like, let's get the hell out because we don't want to be here. Right. So we end up getting like a blues rock singer that's kind of more like Black Crozy. And we kind of go even weirder. Like we get Mario Caldado Jr. from the Beastie Boys to produce us. And we're kind of doing like funky weird we have a dj <laughs> money mark from the bc boys played on a record it's just like i was more what i wanted to do because that's where i was into at that point i was so into hip-hop you know and wanted to do it so badly and love the bc boys check your head record and i was like let's do this but with a singer you just like you know back then you had record budgets to mess around with and hollywood records let us make this record and to become a different band they dropped us <laughs> and then we we you know put it we kept together and then you know, and then uh, then it was just like no man's land. I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know. Yeah. So you said, you know, but not first of all, you said, you know, because you went from you went, wrote the musical in the first uh, city, then you you change your style. How do you, as a writer and a musician, how do you change that? Because I know it's hip hop is what you love, so that of course will come easier. But it's got to be a weird transition because you just wrote an album, and everyone says, you know, I mean, writing an album. I mean, I can right. write jokes. I can I can interview people. You know. I can't write music, and and the right. thing is, and then you're crossing genres, and and you already have come from like this, the the, you know, the heavy shredding to more right. of a metal that where Motley Crue just did right. to a hip hop. So you just just spanned like I mean, it shows something about your talent because you spanned this this I mean between no. shredding hip hop, there's a giant thing. So how do you acclimate to that? And when you start writing, do you sit there and go, okay, here's what this is what I love? Or when you sat there and when you know when you're writing the heavy more heavy metal songs, which you seem like you were never really a fan of, how did you sit there and write it? And was it was it a pain in the ass to sit there and go, okay, I just we we have we want to make an album. I gotta write this crap. I mean, how did you? You just start. Yeah, you listen to what it's selling because at that point, still, <clears throat> excuse me, with Racer X. And the scream, it's it's like it was all about surviving and making money so you could do music for a living. But um, man, I just have allergies. Hold on. <coughs> oh, so sorry. <coughs> anyway, but what I meant. Oh please. Um. Anyway, and so um. Uh, getting back to you know, like you you just kind of like you don't want to go to work. You don't want to have a day job, so you're just figuring it out. Like what can what and you follow those avenues. But the you know when I made. When we started working with Mario Caldado Jr., I was so obsessed with that Check Your Head record. So I was thinking I was doing what I wanted to do. But hip-hop and live band just, uh, you know, I mean, I'm in Deltron 3030 right now, which is a hip-hop group that Del the Funky Homo Sapien fronts. And it's awesome, and it's done right. Back then, we didn't know what we were doing, so it didn't work. And hip-hop wasn't as... Refined, refined now. Right. I mean, back then, it was, right. I mean, you know, when the Beastie Boys, I remember when I was in college, I, when the Beastie Boys 
I think I was in college. I graduated in '86 when the Beastie Boys' first CD came out. We all went nuts, and we right. knew, and we knew Run DMC, right. but that's all we really knew. And then you know when Run DMC did with Aerosmith, they had to do that to get awareness. Right. But at the point when you're in, it's still it's it's virgin not virgin ground, but it's it's not a tre- a heavily treaded ground. And so it must have been, you know, right. crazy for you guys. Now it's it's everywhere, so it's, it's easier. But back then it must have been oh, people geez. must have been like, what the hell? What the hell are they doing? We had a really cool A and R girl who let us make the record, and then we did our first show, and the label dropped us after the first show. Why? Just because the people? It, come it was out? just like we don't know what to do with this. We don't know how to sell this. This is a band with the turntablist and Money Mark was uh, playing keyboards. We had, you know, like it was just this, you know, DJ Scratcher dude. I don't know. It was just just too much for them and 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 you know of course if we would have had a song that they would have fell in love with so we probably didn't even have that so then anyway we all we all we keep trying to do it on our own we get Abe Laboreal Jr. on drums which is Paul McCartney's drummer he's our drummer and and we still try to refine it to see if we could get somewhere with it and it just goes nowhere and then we break you know then I like all right I gotta just figure out what I'm gonna do with my life like you know what am I doing I'm not making any money did and you then, ever did you ever think of move leaving music or was it still where you'd like I'm gonna find out what I'm gonna do but I'm staying in music? And did you ever sit there and get to that that point where you go, okay, man, I've had a run, I'm doing this, I'm good, and of course you're getting good artists to play with you, which I think would be the most frustrating. You know, if you suck and you quit, that's one thing. Yeah, you right. suck, you weren't that good. People got. But then if someone leaves and you're good, I mean, did you ever sit there and go, okay, I'm just not, I just don't want to do this music business anymore, or, or did you ever go through that? I mean, kind of course, you yeah, it's like anything. I you know, you just think like. You know what? It's not that you don't love it, and it's not even that you believe that you're not good at it. You're just like, I fucking hate the bullshit that goes with it. Right. And I'm over that. Like, I, I mean, God, you, you know, I could say that today. Like, I'm just like, you know, it's, it's like a, I always tell my friends, it's like wheel spinning. Unless you're part of a legacy band or you're a writer in a band that's popular, you're making peanuts, and it's just, it's just wheel spinning. Eventually, all that's gonna end, and then you're gonna be back to, I don't have any loot. You know, I know dudes who are like, yeah, I'm on tour. They've been on tour for like a three-year run. It's all good. Tour ends. Guess what? I got to get a day job. Hell yeah, you got to get a day job because when the money stops, like there's no retainers anymore. I right. grew up in an era when there was retainers. Which is where you, if they, they would pay you just not to play, play with other bands or? Correct. And you would just, so you could also survive until the next phase of whatever, next album cycle or tour cycle or whatever. And so, you know, that's all gone. So it's just like, yeah, you got to work and you got to do your thing. You know, when something comes up, you leave work. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like, until so you get frustrated, you know? And as you, you know, shit, I'm 51, so you don't think I get frustrated with it? Like, you know, Deltron's fun. It's a great experience. But the only way I can really make it worthwhile for me is I do clinics for pedal companies. Like, they make gear. So I go out there and I do clinics, and that kind of helps you know, make touring worthwhile financially because the pedal company doesn't have to fly me to that city. So I'm already there. Right. <clears throat> so like I miss sound checks. I just go do the clinic, go to the gig, play the gig. Luckily the band's cool enough to let me do this and it makes it financially worth it. But yeah, it's just, you know, again, like, yeah, I've thought a bunch of times, like, should I do this anymore? I don't know. But, you know, I went back to school after all this and I started playing in a like kind of like, like a post-punk, I don't know what you would call it, but it was more influenced by the the earlier stuff I was doing in the 80s. And so I go back to that and I just had fun. I didn't make any money, but I was like, God, I just feel so comfortable with all this. And then, you know, not making any money or whatever and starting my own bands, but not caring that I'm not making any money. And then I get a call from the Mars Volta and then I was on tour for 10 years with them. Now, how did they know about you? And did you have to audition? One of the bands I was in that was making no money was called Distortion Felix. And the guitar player was at a bar. I saw Omar and Cedric who are from Mars Volta and they were looking for a bass player. And he goes, you should take my bass player. And they, they just were tripped out by that that idea like you would offer up your own bass player. And my friend was like, well, I just think he would fit perfectly with you. That's why I'm offering. I, I, I may, I'm making the suggestion. And so I went and auditioned, I got it, and I was on the road basically for 10 years. So what's that like? I mean, so you sit there and you, you know, I just said, a point before, you know, scream it ended, and you're sitting there and, and you're frustrated, and you're sitting there going, ah, oh, this sucks, right. you know? And then and all of a sudden someone says, let's go, you're coming on a, did you think it would be that long of a run with them when you, when you joined them? 
I mean, did you have Never. any idea? I thought it was going to last three. I thought, I think it was the first one. I thought it was going to last like a month. That's it. So you thought you thought. Well, you... just because because and they're they're very private dudes and they're very guarded. And so even though I was touring and playing with them, I never I never had anybody come up to me and say, you know, feel good and comfortable. You got this. It was never like that. Everybody kind of who wasn't in the main part of the band, which was basically the singer, the guitar player, and then the drummer was definitely part of that. And you just never got, you know, they go great show, whatever, but it was never like, I don't know. I just never felt secure in it. So I was like, well, if I just get it through the first month, cause like my first thing was like, we did a warm up show, Coachella, and then uh, three weeks of red hot chili pepper touring. Now, now what year was this? 2003. Okay. So Coachella wasn't what Coachella is it's now. It's pretty fucking big. But it was really, I mean, I mean, cause yeah. now my, I, it's like my friend said, my friend goes, he actually bought me a t-shirt. I've never gone. My friend brought me a t-shirt back. And I said, I, I'll wear it. And I said, you know, just now it's like I crack up because it's like, like people put on the Facebook. It's like they sit there and tickets go on sale and they're sold in like five yeah, minutes. Yeah, they just went on sale a, a month ago with no announcement of who's playing or whatever. And, and they sold out. They sold out like that. So what was it like? I mean, when you went to Coachella, I mean, must have, that's got to be something big because you're going to this new band, which you hadn't toured a lot, had you, before that? Um. <clears throat> not like that, no. Not like how they toured, no. I mean, how were you touring before you got with them? The screen toured. We did like U.S. tour a few times, and then we did, uh, you know, the U.K., but that was it. We never got anywhere outside of Europe other than that. And then Mars Volta, like, you know, the the first year I was, you know, in, you know, Europe, like within the first six months of it, you know. What's that like, though? I mean, it's, it's like if you haven't traveled a lot, you know, you've been concentrating on your music. And then all of a sudden you're sitting there and you're uh, on a, on a, on a big tour. I mean, is it, it, what's it, I mean, is it, are you psyched or does it start getting grueling after a while? Cause I mean, you know, it's like anything I mean, I was on the road for seven or eight years and, and you know, in the beginning you're like, Oh, this is great. This is great. This is great. And then you're like, Oh Christ, I got to drive to this gig or, uh, you know, but I mean, what was it like? Cause you were of course touring in a higher thing than a comic back East. But what was it like when you started trap touring like in a higher class style was it just an amazing time um well i, I think it i think it, it it was and it wasn't i mean you know, mars volta like i you know after the first run with the chili peppers i did in 2003 which was like four weeks of me being into the band or five weeks uh one of our members dies so okay. then we cancel a leg of the chili pepper tour and we're like i'm not i don't hear from anybody you know, all I heard was from Omar, the guitar player, calling me and telling me that one of our members had passed. And I, you know, and he, he's crying and I start crying. He hangs up and I'm crying. And then a few days go by. I don't know what's going on. A few weeks go by. I don't know what's going on. And I'm just like, shit, I guess it's over. This is what I thought. Right. And then, and then they call me and they go, okay, you know, we canceled the Chili Pepper tour and, you know. Anyway, but long story short, we just like, I mean, from what I can remember, we start back up and then we just grinded and we grind and we grind. And it was like when we weren't doing Mars Volta, Omar, the guitar player, is a workaholic and he would do his solo touring and I was the bass player in that. So even when we had breaks, I was on tour with him. So I literally, when I say I was on tour for 10 years, I think there was one year I was home for like a six month stretch. Other than that, it was constant touring, constant. So when the person died, the band member how do you rebuild from that because I mean, it's like as it, it's weird because you said as you said you sort of felt like a an outsider in the beginning but then i guess this would pull everyone closer because it's just a thing but it does it does but you're still like it's not your band and it's their band and they're calling the shots and they're very guarded with with information i mean like you find out if you're going on tour from an email it's not like they called you and say hey we're thinking of doing this. none of that it's just like Somebody from management would be like, oh, here are the tour days. And you're like, fuck, we're going on tour. You know, <laughs> right. so, so it's kind of like that. And so, but, you know, over time I, I, I got more comfortable in it, but it's, it's, it wasn't the kind of situation where, you know, Omar, Omar knew exactly what he was doing, the guitar player, and he's the one who runs the band. And so he never wanted anybody to get too comfortable because I think in his vision, it would, you would lose your edge. So everybody was always just like, like wanted to do it but was like also didn't want to lose the opportunity. And, 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 you know, when you got, get that kind of rocket up to a certain level, you're just like, man, this thing is going to be the biggest band in the world. Like, you're just like, 
we're, this is it. We're the, we're the, we're the dudes that it's going to happen for. And so you just want to just hold on tightly. And so I just, I just did my best to give him and the band the best I could. Now, what were some of your favorite places to play? Oh shit. I mean, if you sit there, cause like, I know like I had, uh, what's uh, Jason Sutter, you know, Jason Sutter. Uh-uh. What band is he in? He was, he's right now he's playing with Smash Mouth. He's a drummer, but he's played with Farner. He took Tichi's place in Farner. Okay. And, uh, he was saying when you go to South America, the people just are the most amazing fans. He said that in Russia. I don't know if you played <clears> in Russia, but he said those yeah. were two things. But he said I played everywhere. He said he said in South America the fans are just they're so yeah. rabid. Well, imagine about for Mars Volta, we're Latinos, so, so yeah. What, what's that like? They I mean, go fucking crazy. For I mean, us. I mean, like how? I mean, <clears> I mean, did they sit there? Did they did they crowd your hotel room? I mean, what? Let's say you yeah, get you you definitely drive up to your hotel and they're they're there and you're like, well, how'd they know? Because the promoters. I think what happens is the promoters sell the information to super fans and then the super fans show up at your hotel because they paid money to be able to know where you're staying. Okay. Or you, or maybe bands always stay at these certain hotels. But I, somebody told me that, but who knows? But anyway, but yeah, I mean, we're Latinos. So, and you know, they, they, they can speak Spanish to the microphone and tell them what's up. And it's just like, they feel like, no, oh, it's one of us getting big on the world level, you know? So yeah, it was awesome. But but to play is different from to 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 kick it at like right you know we did big day out when it existed which was a traveling tour that you'd get like i don't know 30 40 bands and it's like it's like coachella but it travels all over australia the first one we did with that was with metallica the strokes us peaches uh i'm just trying to think about black eyed peas all the bands we hung out with that was awesome so what's it like when you do those festivals it's like like you guys all stay at the hotel i mean I, I, but I the big think... day out they called the big day off and it's because you play a show then you have like three days off and because okay. they're sending the gear to the next city and so some bands would do like uh their own solo show we would do our own show but it was literally non-stop party and i'd be i i literally there wasn't a day that i wasn't hung over on that tour it was just my just bananas like i just drink i'll smoke i smoked a little weed here and there if we could find it but i'm not a big stoner but you know but drinking for sure and i it'd be just john the drummer at the time and me and and we just go out every night and just kick it and hang out with everybody it was awesome now, super fun now do people recognize you when you go out do they buy you not, drinks uh, no or? not me they recognize my bandmates but i'm the bass player i'm dude i i literally i've walked out of the venue sometimes with the audience to go to the <laughs> hotel and you just hear everybody talking about how great the band is they even say my name and i'll be right there and they'll look me right in the eye and they don't know who i am that might but that's 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 got to be good just because i mean i mean if you use your name you, i always think if you can use your name and get a table at a restaurant that's cool if no one comes up and bothers you when you're eating that's even cooler that must be great for uh, like the basis because you think i mean who were some of the bigger i mean the basis people know of they know bill wyman they know nikki you know, six they you know no it's like it's like it's a thing where it's like basis are, are the backbone of the band a lot i've always i've really from the show i've gotten a very high appreciation for like people who play bass like doug pinnock was on you know people yes. like that and then drummers because you guys are the backband everyone sees the singer and the guitarist but i'll be honest you guys make up the core and you guys i always think are, are you know, just you make up the backbone. I mean, that's like the spine. Like that's I like definitely a Mars Volta. Our jams were driven, I think, by the rhythm section, and we were known to jam a lot. And so, definitely, the rhythm section was the the heat in it. You know, kind of driving it through, and then the vocals and the guitar would complement it and make it into more atmospheric or give it kind of its its aesthetic. But literally, like you know, John and I back when we would do all that stuff. He's a drummer in the Queens of the Stone Age now, but yet back when he was in our band, we just that was an era that he and I were just, I believe that it was just, I mean, we were untouchable. That I mean, in my opinion, you know, and so, but yeah, I and I'm a believe me, I'm obsessed with drummers. I've been fortunate to play with the best drummers in the world. I've only done one recording with Tishy, um, but I've I've uh, I've played. I mean, like I said, Abe Laborio Jr., the John Theater, who plays in Queens of the Stone Age. Every Mars Volta drummer has been absolutely top-notch. You know, I've just been fortunate to to do so. I did one track with Vinny Caliuta, if you can believe it. So, you know, like, I'm, I watch YouTubes of drummers. I just sit there, I'm like, it's amazing to me. Because, you know, I agree with Steve Albini. There's the two things that he's fascinated with the most in bands are singing and drums, because they're the hardest things to execute. You know what I mean? Vocals is extremely hard, and drumming. And so you just become obsessed with that, those two elements. 
Now with the basing, playing bass, who who are some of the bass players that you look at and go, wow, that guy is amazing? Like, because everyone you know sits there. Who do you consider your peers? Some that say because I've had so many, but I mean, like I always reference Jocko, but that's just because he's like the Hendrix of our instrument, and I was at one time so obsessed with him that I used to emulate him, and I would try to speak like him, and I would wear sweaters like he would wear, and you know, I would just. I used to, that was my bad phase of me doing, you know, drinking and pills and shit to try to be like him. You know, like I just wanted to be him. I figured it would eventually come out. You know, you're dumb, dumb shit, you know, but right. I was into him. But then, you know, every era, like it just depends. Like I, you know, like the Jesus Lizard bass player, David Williams Sims, he's one of my all time favorites in the world. Peter Hook from Joy Division. I love uh, Mick Karn. Um, love him. Uh, so many. There's just been so many. So it's really hard. Like John Entwistle was like an early one. Um, I don't really like a lot of modern bass players, but that's just. I don't think it's because I'm getting older. It's just like I don't. I don't know. I don't see the instrument evolving that much, or at least it's evolving in a place that I don't like. So I tend to like weirder bass players. Like my friend Jonathan Hishke is one of my favorite bass players. He plays awesome bass, but it's just so tripped out and weird because he does a lot of cool effects or just comes at it with weird angles so I, I you know i just i don't really like shredder bass players never have don't like fusion bass players not a big fan now you said effects now your website's pedal and effects right now what does that come from and, and what is i mean how did that... mars volta was like i you know omar and i had probably a 90 pedals on stage collectively i mean he definitely had more but i had a ton and we became this band that people you know, in our jams we'd go through soundscapes and omar and i just got it like years of, of of experience live experience of creating sounds and in between songs we'd have these breaks so everybody could rest up and so i would either make sounds or omar would be making sounds since like marcel or ike would be making sounds and we just have these soundscapes happening and that's i just got obsessed with pedals taking my instrument somewhere else i didn't want to to be just like bass. How do you get into that? I mean, how do you learn that? I mean, because it's so different. It's like, I always think, you know, as I said, I'm not a musician. I, I had one of those Casio keyboards and I knew how to play a song, <laughs> the beginning of the song by the Hooters, which is a band from Philly. Got right yeah, of course. And I was, I could play the beginning of the, and I just look at it and there'd be like, like this thing's like, right. the songs. but how do you, because you're at a, it's a, such a bigger level. I mean, how do you sit there and say, I'm going to incorporate pedals because bass, a lot of times people accept bass as a very traditional instrument, right. four strings, backbone. Right. Boom. How do you sit there and go, okay, I'm going to change this up. And what made you do that? Just because the band, I mean, you know, I, I was, I had an album that I did in the like late nineties called Vato Negro, where it's just bass and drums. And it's just me going crazy on effects because I was into it. I just wanted to transcend the instrument. I, did, I was so tired of standard bass. And I kind of done that throughout my career. I mean, you know, definitely when I first, you know, like shredding was part of me. And then I got out of that and I was trying to learn how to play funky bass. So I just obsessed myself with funky bass. Then at one time I wanted to learn how to play fretless because Jocko did. So I spent years just playing fretless only. Got tired of that, went into effects. And that's kind of where I've been in because effects evolve constantly and there's new effects all the time. You just... You're just trying to transcend. You're just trying to innovate. You know, Van Halen played with effects. You know, there's things he did. Everybody wanted to know what he did. You'd go to a Van Halen concert and go, what's he going to do on this tour that he hasn't done yet? And you'd see it. You'd be like lit up. And right. I would be lit up. And so that's that same thing. Like in Mars Volta, I was just like, this tour, I'm going to light them up. They're going to go, where's that coming from? And I'm going to be like, boom, that's me. I'm, I'm, I'm coming at you. See, that's cool you say that because it's weird. It's like people do get into that. It's like when uh, Frampton comes alive, when he did that wah, wah. Yeah, the voices, talk Ev box. Everyone was like, you know, yeah, he talks with the guitar. Like, what the hell? We you're going, he, yeah. And you hear it on the radio and you want to yeah. see it. But everybody, yeah. everybody knew that. And they go, oh my God, and to this day, everyone. Yeah. Everyone, you know, if I'm, we're the same yeah. age. So if you're over yeah. 40 and if, if, if you don't haven't owned Fred that comes alive once in your life or listened to right. it, you go, what the hell? But it's the same thing when he did that. Yeah. It changes things. Now, now your website says the most bass friendly DI ever created. Right. What does that mean? Because I was sick of all the guitar player shit out there, you know, like, and especially because the majority of guitar players are all about like blues licks. Like what guitar player does not do that in a YouTube on it with a pedal going shonk, quack, 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 or so whatever. Like it's just, uh, so, I was so over that shit. And there was not, and there's nobody cool like Nels Klein and Mark Rebo doing YouTubes of it. So I was just like, I'll do it for bass because it doesn't exist and I want to see it. 
So I just started doing it and it slowly started taking, doing well. And, and I started incorporating my friends and then I started influencing my friends. And you'd be surprised, man. Like I get these dudes going, I watch your videos all the time. And I'm like, what? You know, big name dudes, whatever. And you're like, really you watch my videos? And then you're just like, fuck, I'm doing something that people wanted. It's not even bass players per se. They're just like keyboard players, drummers. You're like, this dude's here doing wild shit. It's just the, it's the nature of the artist to want to see innovation. So you just go to my site, you'll see some shit that you ain't ever seen. I, I believe that because I haven't seen it anywhere else on the internet, at least not in one place. And so now I have guitar players on, I have um, synth players on, you know, I'm going to have drummers on. It's just a lot more production. And, but yeah, just, it's just doing really well. What made you decide to start putting it on YouTube? I mean, because it's like anything. It's sort of a weird, like, you sit there and go, okay, I'm going to tape my, I mean, what made you do that step? And then I would think, you know, one is if people don't view it, you're like, what the hell? But then two, if people view it and they give you, don't give you likes, then you get pissed off. And even, they may not just get it. Right. But going on YouTube is, you know, a hard thing, especially when you have a following. It's not like some guy who no one knows goes on. And, and like anything, right. you know, because when you said you you know, you know thrash faster than anybody, you're going to have your critics. You're going to have the people who are trying to take you down who say, oh, I'm faster than that guy, like the gun slinging south. And, you know, you're going to get haters. But so when you go on YouTube, were, were you nervous about it? Or what made nah, you what made you decide nah. to go on YouTube? Because, I mean, it's not confidence, but it's just like the security knowing that you've done enough shit and thank God for YouTube because like really it changes that whole history thing, the historic element of it. It's like, Oh really? You don't think I'm worthy of being able to make this YouTube go YouTube my name and just watch some videos of me. I mean, I, I have a good history of playing well. And so you can't really, you can make fun of me, but you can't take away anything from me because I know what I, my, I know my legacy. Right. You can go all the way back to Racer X, there's videos on YouTube of me burning, if that's what you're into, to my website or to Mars Volta's millions of YouTubes. It's like, I, I know I'm a good bass player. And so you, you go ahead, talk shit on me. I don't care. Like, right. it, like there's enough dudes out there who are not talking shit about me. They're going, I like what you do and you've inspired me. And it's like, now, nah, especially as you get older, man, like ins inspiring people and kids is way more important than anything. Like I just... I'm stoked that I get to do that because I wasn't sure I was going to get to do that. I, there's times in my career I was like, I'm not going to have a legacy that I wanted. And now I'm just like, I'm cool with it. YouTube really helped that. But, you know, if it, without YouTube, like what, free music? No, it would have gotten lost in the oblivion right. of free music. But now with YouTube, it's like, yeah, I, well, I see some of the YouTubes that I'm on that I, I'm part of. It's like, you know, a million hits or whatever for a Mars Volta one. I'm just like, that's awesome. There's, you know, that's a big audience. Uh, I'm I'm cool and I'm cool with YouTube. So yes, I back That's it. cool though. Now, how did the reunion with the uh, Racers X? How did that come up? The what? You said you guys re you reunited with the uh, Racers X. Racer X. Not Racer. How did how did that come up? Um, that was before Mars Volta, and it was just you know there was money in Japan to go get, and so, so we just... went got back together. We got back together without one of the guitar players because the Racer X started out with just Paul, me, singer and drummer, and then. Uh, the second record, we added a guitar player and a new drummer, and that was like the pinnacle record, Second Heat. And then when we got back together, Bruce Bouillet, who was the other guitar player, didn't want to do it with us, so we just did it. It was Paul, me, Jeff, and Scott, the drummer. And we did three studio records and probably a live record, yeah, a live DVD or something. But the first two were really good. The, the last one, we were already losing it again. We were just like, oh, why are we doing this? But the first two were pretty good, and we toured Japan, did some shows in LA, but again, no touring. This just isn't an audience for it. Right. And maybe if we toured music school, but <laughs> you know what I mean? There's no real audience for us. Now the clinics, because it's funny, I noticed, and there's a lot of drummers doing clinics now, and I think it's great because it gives people, first of all, they get to meet someone right. and they get to learn. How, why did you, did, did you decide the clinics because of the money or did you decide you wanted to help build your legacy? Because it's something that people come and, you know, they get to see you and, and they, I'm sure they ask, because when you do a clinic, how many people will show up? I mean, any, it, it, you know, man, it depends on the store and how, how much the store gets behind you. Cause I've, I've done a clinic where I thought there was going to be a ton of kids and there was no one like my hometown. I did one in, in Marin and I don't know, 10 people showed up when I walked into the store, nobody knew who I was. I'm like, that's a problem right? because oh, I'm doing a clinic today and nobody knows who I am. But I did some in Australia recently where there was like, you know, I don't know, 80, 
I did one in Chicago Music Exchange uh, a couple of weeks ago. There was probably a hundred. I mean, maybe not a hundred, like maybe like eighty. But again, like it just depends. It depends on how well the store does it. I've, you know, and again, when I do clinics, it's not like this is how you play the scale or mode or this is this chord progression. I'm, I'm like, this is how you create the sound. But more than that, it's actually a performance. I start getting sounds happening, and then I look up, and they're all like, "Whoa, how did you do that?" You know, and then I'm stoked because they're lit up. It's because it's a live performance. That's I'm selling the idea because I do it for Earthquaker Devices, which is a pedal company, and I'm selling the idea that pedals and all that is about inspiration. And when you find a pedal that inspires you to do something that you you didn't know you could do, then you have a connection to it, and you're gonna buy it. And that's what I'm selling. I'm not trying to say you should get this distortion or this fuzz pedal. It's like, find the thing that you go, oh my God, I could write a hit record with it or I could write the best record with it or whatever you're trying to do, but you're going to find a sound and it's going to be like, that's it. And so my thing is all about live performance clinics and you're seeing me solo bass create moments. And then when I do create moments, people clap and they're into it. And then they come up to me at the end and they go, shit, I didn't expect that. That was awesome. So I've been doing a pretty good job and I'm pretty good at it now because I've done it for a couple of years now. Now you, you plan to keep doing that. I mean, do you, do you, yeah. that, do you really enjoy that? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll be doing it. Um, I go to NAMM show, Summer NAMM uh, for Earthquaker Devices and I'll be there doing some stuff there. And then I'm going in September for Warwick. They have a bass camp with all bass players, but I might do some kind of, of thing there. And then I'm probably going to schedule some clinics at music stores in other countries um, and then, yeah, I still do them in the States. It's, it's fun, man, because it is a performance. It's not like, all right, this is how I played this song. I'm not doing right. that. I'm not doing that. Not in, I'm not interested in that. So now the band you're with now. Oh, um, Deltron 3030, which is a hip hop group. Now, how did you get, how did that start? Dan, the automator is the guy he grew up or he's from the Bay Area. He lives in San Francisco. And so we had mutual friends. So in the early nineties, I did this record with him. I played bass on this record that he was making called Dr. Octagon with Cool Keith. So I did that with him and we always stayed in touch. Um, and then uh, he was looking for a bass player and I said, I'll do it. And so I was, I just finished that tour, literally finished up this weekend. And that was two and a half years. And then um, right now, like I've just got some clinics up and I don't have anything on this um to, to go tour anything right now I just, no plans no i mean it's kind of cool because then i can finish up records i'm doing and you know of course if something comes up but like it's 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 not easy out there man it's it's, it's it gets rougher and rougher for me i don't know it could it's i think it's you know it could be somewhat ageism but i don't believe it's that i believe it's just the only way bands make music is to tour and every band is on tour so how many shows can really get booked you know right, what I mean? Right. Oh yeah, that's like that's like yeah, that's like comedy too. It's like there's so many comedians. How many comedians can go out on the road unless you go with a act or support an act? Then you know. But this to go, right. there's only so many headlining spots, and people don't get that. So that's what happens. And the festivals you see them, it's all the same bands. Like oh, St. Vincent's on another festival, and it's you know what I mean. It's like oh, you know, uh, Jack White's on another festival, and Arcade Fires, and or whatever. Not Arcade Fire because they did their own tour, but but you get that a lot. You just like it's the same thing in every city. You know, and it's just like, it's not like, oh, we're going to have our own. I mean, you know, it's just. And a lot of the festivals sort of suck because a lot of the bands play at the same time. Like, it's always like the one band you want to see. Like, I used to live in San Diego and they had street scene. And I'm like, oh, okay, I want to see X. But then someone else is playing and I can see sure. three minutes by the sure. time you get, because they're popular, you get to the crowd and you're like, screw this, man. Can't they put it where it says, okay, here, we'll right. have one stage. Right. We'll, instead, no, instead of three stages, we'll have. One stay, one big, one little. And the big one will play, boom, 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 boom. Right. And they'll play this so you can watch this. Then you can run across there and watch it. Maybe stop and get a beer. And they never do that. So you sit there and you're going, because my buddy got, said the same thing about Coachella. He's like, I said, did you did you watch uh, when the replacements played? I go, did you watch the replacements? He goes, yeah, but I want to see someone else. And I was like, dude, how could you want to see, you know, it's just, it sucks for the, the people who go to these concerts because it's good money. You pay good money. Bands like the money. Most bands do not like festivals. That's what that's my experience of of just talking to people doing like no band really you just got to do it because it makes money and especially now nobody likes just the fact that you know like one of my favorite bands of all time got together they're called Dry Like Jay who they did Coachella I think they played in front of a thousand people I think Coachella thought there was going to be a lot more but everybody was at EDM tents right 
you know, like I don't even know why they put bands on Coachella anymore. It's no EDM. You're gonna sell it out, and you know those dudes. It's just a laptop lights you know like one dude making all that loot yeah it's funny you know yeah you sit there and you flip around because it was on tv and it was on youtube it was on some like access and you said you say yeah you sit there it's like it's a bunch of kids dancing and they don't give a crap what's playing they're just they're there to, for coachella it's like i always crack up like steely Dan. steely Dan. Right. Hey, i like steely Dan, but i do too 21 year old kids don't give a shit about steely Dan. they're probably like what is this you know and it's not like steely Dan is a known for their live performances you know it's more of you go and you hang about and you watch. Right. We just have a few minutes left. Okay. Now you're also a spokesman for MPD. I'm sorry. What? You're a spokesman for MPD. Yes. And yes. Now, now, how, now, what do you do for that? Uh, what do you do for them? Haven't done anything for them for a while, in a while because it's just it's it's you know I get so busy, but I have a blood disorder, and so um, you know there's no cure. It's an orphan drug. It it less than a hundred thousand people have it in the United States, so a lot of funding doesn't get you know drawn up for it so they just try to raise money for it um i think there's giant steps being made in cancer treatments right now and and possibly even possibly even cures as they're saying so we'll see i just saw this vice special and what what they're doing like shooting aids virus into this cancer cells and that kills you know it you know you don't get the virus but it kills the cancer cells i there was some other i I forget what other one they, they they injected the person with, but you know they're making big strides in it. And so you know I'm I take medication and hopefully I it won't go to the stage where it takes my life. But you know whatever. I'm, but you I'm still cool. but you still jam, so it didn't affect your jamming. I tour. <laughs> and so that's why I say you're still tour. So that's yes, the thing. So yes. it's one of those things like if a kid yes. goes, I have this, you go, hey man, I, I, I toured for 10 years. I toured all my life. I mean, you're yes. 51. You've been yeah, touring. I got diagnosed in 2006 and here it is in 15 and I'm still touring. So uh, so nothing coming up in the future. We got just no, man, it's, you know, like, I mean, you know, my old bandmate started a new band and, and I, they're doing really well. Uh, you know, my friend John's in Queens of Stone Age, you know, and he's doing that. I have my own bands, but they don't, they're not very big. You know, I have my own band, Big Sur. I have a new band called Halo Orbit with my friend Sugar, who's in a band called Buffalo Daughter. She's on guitar. Mark Giuliana is an unbelievable drummer on drums. And we're waiting for the record to get mixed. So I can't, and it's getting mixed for free. So I can't push it. It's right. just going to get done when it gets done. So I kind of on a holding pattern for that. So I'm just going to make a, more records, work on my website. And if someone calls and it's, a, it's like right now, I'll go on tour. With, you'd be surprised. Just I just want to go on tour where it's no stress because Mars Volta at the end, especially was a lot of stress. And I'm just don't want to spend my, you just rest play. Of my yeah, I, I just don't, I can't live in the stress. Deltron has been so much fun. It's only fun. We all are foodies. We go to the best restaurants. It's just a blast. And I want to do something like that. So if any booty band out there wants a bass player, I mean, dude, I just love touring in a fun environment. So I, if I go out on tour again, it would be for that. But again, like I also don't want to spend my whole life on tour. I love being home, man. My my wife is awesome and she's an amazing cook. I want to be home. So if my wife, website gets even further along, I'm cool with just doing like, pick up dates or whatever. I'm right. cool with that, man. Now you have, do you, do you jam? Do you practice a lot now or do you know? Or I'm just in my studio doing sounds. I don't jam with people. I, I just, I just, it's all about the website and sound creation for me. And, you know, I make my own music, so it's all good. So give all your info, give all like how people can check your workout. Okay. Well, uh, pedalsandeffects.com is my website. My email address is on there. I'm wantedpedalsandeffects.com. You can email me. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Uh, you just Google my name and wantedete, Twitter, you'll find me. Um, Facebook, of course. I'm pretty good at social media. I've had a lot of companies ask me to help them out with their social media because I I do it pretty well. My wife, my wife's in it, so she she understands social media, so she really helped me. Um, but also, um, I'll be at Summer Nam with Earthquaker Devices, and I'll be in Frankfurt, Germany in September with Warwick. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. This is great, man. I'm glad awesome. you can make it out. I know thank you were, you were in Texas. Me. Oh, it was great. And so people check them out, and it's spelled A-L-D-E-R-E-T-E. Correct. That's easy. Don't screw it up. Don't sit there and go T-I-E-E. -E. He's yes. Latino. He's not Italian. <laughs> He's Italian and with an I-E. And that's and it ends with an E. Yeah. And so follow him on Twitter and check out all his stuff. It's great. And check out some of his work on YouTube. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Tweet me. I love tweeting back to me people. I tweet a lot of jokes, so follow me. That's good. Also go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have uh, 385 episodes up there. Or you can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net.
And also, iTunes or Stitcher, it's Cooper Talk, one word. Type that in so you don't get mixed up with Anderson Cooper stuff or any of that stuff. Just Cooper Talk, one word. And also, my website, StopTheSalt.com. As you know, it was three years ago. I was diagnosed with a heart problem. My cookbook, 120 Recipes, all low sodium, easy to make, no pictures to intimidate you, no long list of ingredients. If you don't have cumin, don't worry. You don't have to use cumin. They're all easy to make, and it's StopTheSalt.com. You can get it on Amazon, but buy it from StopTheSalt.com because I make more money, and I'll even sign it for you. So check that out and buy it because you got to live healthy because yes. that's the only way to do it. So that's about it. Uh, remember, at Cooper Talk, follow me. Uh, Cooper at CooperTalk.net. Remember, StopTheSalt.com. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I'll talk to you guys next week.